a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Good morning, everyone, and thanks, Rachel, so much for that reading. I wonder what you made of that psalm as we heard it read. Perhaps there are some things in there that uh, immediately grabbed you. Some beautiful imagery, some striking ideas, the thought of God being a shield, perhaps. Or the picture of being able to go to sleep and wake again with the confident knowledge of God's protection. Perhaps, though, there are some things in there that seemed less appealing. The prayer that God would smash people's jaws in and break their teeth, that is slightly difficult language, isn't it? Or the thought of being surrounded by tens of thousands of enemies on every side. I I hope today that that is slightly alien to your experience. I hope that's never happened to you. And it might be that if you're a regular reader of the Psalms, you've, you've had that sense before. That some of the language of the Psalms resonates beautifully with us. That we find ourselves reading these songs and wanting to sing along because they seem to capture so much of how we feel and what it's like to, to live in this world and what it's like to walk in God's ways. By the way, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you've never read these Psalms before, I'm almost envious of you, you for a real treat looking at these for the first time, uh, and welcome. But you should know that as Christian people, we read these songs and so much resonates with us. But... There are also large parts of the Psalms that we find harder to sing and harder to understand that feel alien to us and slightly strange. See, as Christian people, these Psalms feel like our songs. And there's a rich history and tradition of Christian people and local churches singing these songs. And indeed, the New Testament urges Christians to sing Psalms together. And yet they're also strange songs. They don't map perfectly onto our experience. So as we begin looking at these songs of David together, which we're going to do for the next few weeks, let me orient us by asking this question, what are the Psalms? What are these songs that are in our Bibles? Well, the first thing we need to know is that they're songs of blessing. Last week, Carl gave us a great start to the series, didn't he, in Psalm 2, and Psalms 1 and 2 really give us an introduction to the whole book. And in particular, these, these two Psalms teach us how to be blessed which means how to live a wise and happy life, a life which meets with God's approval. You can see that at the beginning of Psalm 1, the end of Psalm 2. Look at those with me. Look at the beginning of Psalm 1 with me on the page before. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and on his law he meditates day and night. How is someone blessed? By saying no to the ways of the wicked and by saying yes to God's words. Instead of being led astray by the God-hating patterns of the world, the blessed life is found by meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. And so as we read these Psalms together, as we chew on them and think about them and talk about them together, we are opening ourselves up to the blessing of God. We're learning what it means to live a wise and happy life. What a privilege. But there's another component to this blessing. It comes at the end of Psalm 2. Neil also already read it for us. Psalm 2 verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. How is someone blessed? By taking refuge in the son of God king. By submitting to God's Christ, his Messiah. By turning from their rebellion against God's king and becoming one of his subjects. And so these Psalms are also going to confront us with that king. We'll see what it means to be one of his subjects. We'll see what it means to be one of his enemies. And we'll see the blessing of taking refuge in him. You see, these songs of blessing are the songs of David and his people. We have to remember the original context of these psalms, something which the psalms themselves will remind us of. We can see it in the title of today's psalm, can't we? The top of Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. You see, these are not abstract philosophical reflections on who God is or on the life of a believer. These are real, personal, historical cries of the real flesh and blood Son of God King. After hearing about David's life from the outside in 2 Samuel, which we've been doing this uh, last couple of months, we now relive those same historical events from the inside. And so we'll need to work hard to think about David and his context. That'll help us appreciate and understand why some of what we'll read feels quite strange and alien to us. It's because it's not in the first place our story. These are not in the first place our songs. This is David's story. These are David's songs. And yet they're recorded in the Bible as songs. And it's very clear that these are songs which are intended to be sung by other people. They're written in verse. There are instructions about what instruments you should use and what tunes you should sing them to. Even that little word, uh, selah, which appears throughout the Psalms, is probably some kind of musical instruction. We don't really know what it means, just like we don't know the original tunes that they would have been sung to. But the point is, from, from the very beginning, these were not just the songs of David's. They were collected together in this songbook to be the songs of David's people. The Israelites were invited to step into David's words, to relive his experience. And that makes sense because David was their king. He is their leader, their head, their representative. What happened to David was in some sense happening to all Israel. As the king's fortunes rose and fell, so did the fortunes of God's people. And so all Israel were encouraged to imaginatively relive David's story in song. So they could understand that what had happened to David was what had happened to them. And for us as Christian people, there's one more step we have to make. In the New Testament, these songs are referenced more times than any other book of the Old Testament. And that's because just like the rest of the Old Testament, they're not just about David. They're about the Son of God, King of Psalm 2. 
We saw last week, didn't we, that Psalm 2 is originally about David and about the kings in his line, but it points beyond David and a generation or two beyond him to the, to the greater king, the greatest king in David's line. It speaks prophetically of Jesus, the true son of God king, the one with whom God was well pleased. And we will see that every psalm in some way points us to King Jesus. Just as David's story foreshadows Jesus' story, so David's songs are, understood rightly, the songs of Jesus. There are elements of these psalms that sit very naturally on David's lips, but we'll see there are parts of them which only make sense on the lips of his greatest son. We don't have time to look at it in detail now, but do read Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, where he proves that from Psalm 16. And he says these words on the screen. David was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on the throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. So we will hear in these psalms the songs of Jesus. And just as Israel were encouraged to sing along, to enter into and relive the life of King David, so we who trust in Jesus are encouraged to take these psalms and sing them through their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Augustine once said that we sing the psalms as though in a choir led by Jesus where they seem to match with our experience, where they give voice to our deepest thoughts, where they resonate with us, that is because we as Christian people are walking in the ways of the king. We're following Jesus on his path. The New Testament says we share in Christ's sufferings and we partake in Christ's glory. As our head, what has happened to him is what has happened to us. And so as we walk in his ways, our lives will have a similar shape to his. And so we are learning this morning how to be blessed, how to take refuge in God's King, and how to walk and sing in the footsteps of our Saviour, King Jesus. Well, I hope that whets your appetite for the series. I hope you're excited about that. Let's dive in then to Psalm 3. Let's relive the story of Absalom's betrayal of King David from the inside. Remember the backdrop. David's son has stolen the hearts of all Israel. He's been proclaimed as king. And David has had to flee Jerusalem to the wilderness on the other side of the Kidron Valley with just a small band of loyal followers, with no immediate hope of return. What is he doing? How is he feeling? What is he thinking? That's what this psalm tells us. And we're going to see that firstly, he is trusting the God who turns shame into glory. Uh, read with me from verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. I said that David only had a small band of followers with him, and we can feel that in these verses, can't we? Did you notice the repeated use of the word many? It builds up three times. Many are my foes. Many rise against me. Many are saying of me. You get the sense, don't you, of being oppressed and surrounded. Wherever he turns, wherever he looks, he sees disapproving and hate-filled faces. But it gets worse than that because remember the context. Who are these people? Well, they are his countrymen. They are former friends and advisors. They're members of his own family. And they're putting him to shame. Now, shame is a very important concept in the Bible. We're going to meet it again next week in Psalm 4. It is one that is easy to misunderstand. When I think of shame, 
I tend to think of it as a feeling of intense embarrassment and humiliation. I'd probably use the word guilt to mean roughly the same thing. I feel ashamed, I feel guilty, I feel as though I've done something wrong and I want to hide away. Now that is certainly part of the biblical view of shame, but it's not the whole picture. Shame is not just a feeling and it's not quite the same as guilt either. See, if I've broken a law, if I've broken a commandment, I'm guilty. Now I might feel guilty, or I might not, but I am. Shame works a similar way, but it's not about breaking a law, it's about losing the approval and honour of my community. The opposite of shame in the Bible is glory, or praise, or honour. It's about being thought well of and honoured by a group of people. Shame in the Bible is losing that honour. It's about being rejected, losing status, losing my good standing and my good reputation in the eyes of others. Now, that might be fair. I might have done something to deserve that. Or it might not be fair. I might feel humiliated by it. Or I might not. But I am still shamed. I'm rejected and scorned and spurned by my community. Well, this is what's happened to David. He is the object of shame. He's been scorned and spurned by people who used to honour him. Many, many, many people. And notice that in this community which is built around God, this is God's people, God's holy nation, this is a spiritual shame, a religious shame, if you like. See the accusation in verse 2? What are they saying to shame him? They're saying God will not deliver him. Here is the heart of David's shame. The people of Israel are saying of their king, he is not in the right with God. This thing that he is going through is God's judgment on him, and so he cannot hope for God's deliverance. He has lost God's approval... And therefore, he has lost our approval. God has put him to shame, and therefore, we will put him to shame. That is David's story. That's his experience. And that is Jesus' story too, isn't it? When Jesus himself crossed the Kidron Valley in John chapter 18, it was to meet his friend, Judas Iscariot, and a band of soldiers there to arrest him. Within hours, every single one of his disciples had fled or denied even knowing him. At the same time, as the Roman authorities were pronouncing the sentence of death on him, a huge crowd of his fellow Israelites were thronging the palace, screaming, crucify him. In Matthew 27, we hear the sneers of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I'm the son of God's. God will not deliver him. There is shame. So where is the hope for Jesus? Where is the hope for David? Well, look at verse 3. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. At the very moment he is receiving nothing but shame from his own people, he receives glory from the Lord. As David leaves Jerusalem in rags, barefoot, with his head covered and bowed, that traditional way of expressing a sense of shame, he knows that the Lord puts his hand under his chin and lifts his head. The accusation, you see, is wrong. David may have lost his standing and his approval in Israel, but he has not lost it with God. He is in the right with God. So when his community tells him to hang his head in shame, God raises it again in honour. 
Now, we might reasonably ask the question, how can that be? Do you remember when David crossed the Kidron Valley? He was met by Shimei, who pelted him with stones and cursed him, called him a worthless man, a murderer, a man of blood. And what did David say? Let him curse. Let him curse. See, David knew he was a sinner. He didn't make what Absalom was doing okay, but in some senses, David knew that he was getting what he deserved. He knew that his exile from Jerusalem was an outworking of God's judgment on him. But the accusation was still wrong. He was in the right with God. Why? Because he was living a life of repentance and faith. We see it, don't we, in his confession of sin to the prophet Nathan and in his acceptance of the consequences. We see it in his reaction to Shimei. We see it as the students were studying last week in Romans 4, which quotes David's words in Psalm 32. Read me on the screen. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. See, David was a sinner, but he was a repentant sinner, trusting in God even as he walked the path of shame. He trusted that he had God's approval, that one day, somehow, God would lift his head again. That was David's story. And strangely enough, that was Jesus' story too. I say strangely because, of course, Jesus had no sin of his own to repent of. But he too walked the path of shame as he bore our sin to a humiliating death on a cross. He too was rejected and scorned and spurned by his own people. Listen to how Isaiah puts it in the great passage which foretells the coming of the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Jesus was shamed and yet in his resurrection God lifted his head. The one who was shamed is seated with honour at God's right hand just as Isaiah predicted. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. This was David's song. It was Jesus' song, and therefore it can be our song too. We will not suffer the same intensity of shame as David or Jesus, but we will suffer it if we walk in his ways. 1 Peter 4 says that we will be scorned by those around us by not joining in with the normal, common sinful behavior of our culture. Have you experienced that? Do you know that? The weird looks and the disbelieving comments when you say that because you're a Christian you don't do whatever it is or you don't agree with whatever it is. And it might even take on a religious flavour. I thought Christians were supposed to be loving. If there is really a God, I can't believe that he would agree with you on that. We hear people in our culture quote Jesus in order to damn Christians, don't we? Now, sometimes, sadly, they're right, but often they're not. Often the accusation is false. Often Christians who are simply trying to be faithful to their Lord are condemned based on someone else's faulty and partial understanding of what the Bible says. Have you seen that? 
Have you felt it in the workplace, in the schoolyard, in the home? Have you felt the shame and scorn of walking in God's ways? You should know that you're not alone. You're walking in the footsteps of the Son of God King, and though all shame you, God will glorify you. He will one day lift your head. And that brings us to the next section and David's next thoughts as he flees Absalom, that he is trusting the God who turns fear into confidence. Look at verse five and six with me. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Now that is a fairly remarkable couple of verses, isn't it? David has lost his home, his kingdom, his safety, his reputation. He's in very serious danger of losing his life, but he's not afraid. He, is in, he lays his head down on a rock somewhere in the wilderness and gets a solid eight hours. And he wakes refreshed. At this point, he is not fretting, tossing and turning, going over things in his mind, you know, all the things we do when life is stressful and we find it interferes with our sleep. No, he is unafraid, he is confident, and so he sleeps. So here's the question. What is David not afraid of? Where is his confidence? How can he sleep? Or, or can I put it like this? What is his gospel? What is the good news that David believes in, which, which David believes in, which means he's not afraid, but is confident enough in the middle of the worst crisis of his life to snuggle down and get a quick 40 winks? Well, let's consider the possibilities. Perhaps he's not afraid because he is completely convinced that his enemies are going to fail. Perhaps he thinks that God will definitely restore him to Jerusalem, that there is no credible threat to his life, and that everything is just going to turn out just fine. Is that what David thinks? Well, this is where it's so helpful to have the context of 2 Samuel. We've just been studying it. Does David in 2 Samuel think that everything is going to be okay? Let's look at a few verses to jog our memories. Remember when Ittai the Gittite, lovely name, tells David that he wants to come with him. What does David say? The king said to Ittai the Gittite, why should you come along with us? Go back, stay with King Absalom. You're a foreigner, an exile from your homeland. You came only yesterday, and today shall I make you wander about with us where I don't know where I'm going? Go back and take your countrymen. May kindness and faithfulness be with you. What happens when the priests bring the Ark of the Covenant to David? Well, the king said to Zadok, take the Ark of the Covenant back into the the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he'll bring me back and let me see it in his dwelling place again. But if he says, I'm not pleased with you, then I'm ready. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And we've already seen what he says when Shimei curses him. David then said to Abishai and all his officials, my son, who is of my own flesh, he's trying to take my life. How much more then than this Benjamite? Leave him alone. Let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. See, David has no particular confidence, I don't think, that Absalom will definitely fail and that he'll definitely be restored as king. Yes, he has the promise of God in 2 Samuel 7 that his dynasty will never fail, but Absalom is in his dynasty. Absalom's his son. This might be God's way of keeping that promise. See, as David lies down with his head on the rock in the middle of the wilderness, he cannot say, oh, it'll all be fine in the morning. If he's talking about the present circumstances, it might well not be. 
So where is David's confidence? What is the good news that makes David not afraid? Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep, I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. Here is David's confidence. It's in his relationship with the Lord his God. He is calling out to Yahweh, and Yahweh is answering him from his holy hill. Now, if you were here last week, that should ring a bell. Zion, God's holy hill, is where God proclaims his decree that puts the Son of God king on his throne. Look back with me at Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. Here is God speaking, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. See, David, the repentant sinner, is God's adopted son because he's the king. It is God who answers his prayers. It is God's decree that is going to determine David's future, not Absalom's. Now, David at this point doesn't know precisely what that decree is going to say. But he knows that he is in good standing, good relationship with the God of the universe who is in control of everything and who laughs at rebellion. And so whatever happens to him, whether he's going to die in the wilderness or whether he will be restored to glory in Jerusalem, he puts himself in the hands of the good God, in the hands of his loving and powerful father. In verse 5 of Psalm 3, David says that the Lord sustains him. That word has the sense of the arm under the shoulder which holds you up. I was reminded reading this verse of the old hymn. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, O abide with me. It is David's relationship with God, his adoption as his son, which means he does not fear, which means he can sleep at night. That is his gospel. We see something similar with Jesus, don't we? We see the same confidence in his relationship with God. We see Jesus asleep in the stern of a boat, rocked by the waves, and when he's woken, he says to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you so little faith? We see Jesus confidently and powerfully speak the truth to his fiercest enemies. On the eve of his death, he says to his disciples that they shouldn't be troubled. Because he abides in his Father's love, and so do they. However, we must not misunderstand what's going on here. This gospel, this good news, this relationship of adoption with the Father does not produce a sort of zen-like, blissful calm. Neither King David nor King Jesus floated through life in a pink, fluffy haze, did they? Like a Disney princess. They were real human beings, subject to all the pressures and hardships and weaknesses that beset humans everywhere. In the later Psalms, we see the psalmist tossing and turning on his bed, unable to sleep. We see Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, believing in God, walking in his ways. These do not immunize us from the difficulties of life and from feeling those difficulties very intensely. In fact, some of the hardship and anguish that the psalmists faced came about precisely because they were believers, because they were doing God's will. The supreme example, of course, is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in anguish, weeping all night instead of sleeping as he faced the agony of the cross. Yet what was he doing in that garden? 
He was praying, committing himself to the care and to the will and to the sustaining power of his Father in heaven. What does this mean for us, for Jesus' people? Well, when I'm lying awake at night with hard situations and stressful circumstances running through my head, very often I will try to console myself with the thought that it'll all turn out for the best. It'll be all right. It'll be right. It'll be okay. We'll get sorted. Maybe not tomorrow. Maybe not this week. But maybe in a few weeks. Maybe after the holidays. Maybe after Christmas. Uh, Maybe if I just make this one tweak, actually. Or maybe uh, if I play my cards right in that particular conversation, everything is going to be great. That's my gospel. Now, in God's kindness, he may well grant us relief from hardship. He's that kind of God. And do not hear me wrong, there are resources in the gospel to help us weather the storms of this life and to find joy in the midst of suffering. We'll come to that in a bit, and we're going to come more to it next week. But the point is this, being a Christian won't stop us suffering, and actually might bring us, in the short term, greater hardship. Yet the voice of God speaks, and has spoken from his holy hill. And what it says is that he has raised Jesus from the dead. He's rescued his precious son from judgment. And in that act, he has made all of us who trust in him into his sons, into his daughters, into his heirs. He promises not to shield us from every hardship, but to hear our prayers. He promises not to fix everything in this life, but to sustain us and hold us up. He promises not deliverance from the struggles and afflictions of life here and now, but deliverance from sin and death and ultimate deliverance into eternal life with him. Now, I think that's strangely and wonderfully comforting. You see, it'd be nice to believe, wouldn't it? It'd be nice to believe that life will be easy, and that being a Christian will fix all my problems here and now. And there are versions of gospels, quote-unquote gospels, that have come up over the years that have taught that. The prosperity gospel, which says that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and happy, right here and now, all the time. The sort of therapeutic gospel that says that believing in Jesus means to to, to fix all your your mental problems and and reduce all your agitation and keep you calm and make you happy on the inside. The social gospel that says that the gospel of Jesus is going to fix this world and transform culture and bring justice and harmony here and now. Those are dangerous fantasy gospels because all of them have little hints of truth in them. But they're fantasy gospels because they try to claim what uh, here and now what God only promises for the future. And they treat God as a means to an end to get what I want and to solve the problems in my life. And if we have a fantasy gospel like that, that believing in Jesus will shield us from all the hardship and difficulties of life, well, when that fantasy gospel butts up against reality... It's not going to survive the conflict. But the true gospel shows us life as it really is. It doesn't sugarcoat. We're weak and sinful people living in a fallen world. And therefore we may find ourselves, literally or figuratively, beset on every side by enemies, by afflictions. Now that is not right. That is not how the world should be. That is not how the world was when it was first made, and it's not how the world will be in the new creation. But for now, that's normal. So how can we sleep at night? How can we be free from the fear which would drive us away from God? The answer is to hear the voice of the Lord from his holy hill. 
the declaration which he spoke over David, which he spoke over Jesus, and which he now speaks over all those who belong to God's anointed king. You are my son. You are my daughter. Today I've become your father. With you, I'm well pleased. And so finally we see David trusting the God who turns curse into blessing. Look at the last two verses of the psalm with me, verse 7 and 8. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Verse 7 might sound very harsh to us. After all this talk of forgiven sin and the gospel which makes the enemies of God into his sons and heirs, it's therefore a bit grating, isn't it, at the end to hear this very strong language calling for judgment and what seems like quite harsh judgment, striking enemies on the jaw, breaking the teeth of the wicked. It can sound almost bitter, doesn't it? It can sound sort of unpleasantly vengeful. But again, we need to be aware of what we're hearing when we read this kind of language in the Psalms. Remember, these are the songs of the king. This is not just vindictive anger. This isn't someone just lashing out in their pain. This is the anointed son of God king calling for vindication. And he's calling for a punishment which fits the crime. Just compare with me verse 7 and verses 1 and 2 to see that. In verse 1, the enemies rise up against David. In verse 7, David calls God to rise up against them. In verse 2, the enemies put David to shame with their words. In verse 7, God, uh, David calls God to strike them on the cheek. Now, elsewhere in the Bible, that is a symbol for putting someone to shame. You can look at Job 16, verse 10, if you want to just check that, where a slap on the cheek is, a, is a, a symbol for putting someone to shame. In verse 2, the enemies speak falsehood about David and his king. In verse 7, breaking their teeth is a way, I think, of silencing that falsehood. In verse 2, the enemies say that David is out of relationship with Yahweh. In verse 7, David calls Yahweh my God. In verse 2, the enemies say that God will not deliver him. In verse 7, David cries out confidently for deliverance. Do you see, David is just not just asking for mean people to be punished because they're mean. He's asking for the enemies of God to be proved wrong. He's asking for himself to be vindicated, not, not in David's case as a perfect individual, a sinless saint, but vindicated as the son of God, the anointed king, one who is in good standing with God. Even as he is experiencing the judgment of God, he is receiving it as the discipline of his father, as we saw in 2 Samuel. Even though God's hand is against him, he knows God's heart is for him. And he is speaking of those who are raising themselves up against the Lord's anointed. Those who are trying to usurp God's king. Those who are speaking lies about God and his anointed one. Precisely those people, in other words, who we met at the beginning of Psalm 2. Kings and nations raging and setting themselves up against the Lord and his anointed. Now, we learned last week, as a sort of headline for the whole book of the Psalms, there, are still, there is still hope for such people. If they repent and pay homage to the Son, they will find refuge and blessing. But if not, then verse 7, justice will be done. 
they will be repaid precisely as their sins deserve with utter fairness and justice. And the king will be not only delivered from their um, enmity, but vindicated as in the right with God. Now, I've already said, I think it is fair to say that David did not know how the precise situation was going to be resolved. He didn't know for sure that God intended for Absalom's rebellion to be overthrown and for he himself to be reinstated as king. He prayed for that. He worked for that, as we saw in the series. He hoped for that. But I do think it's right to say he had no guarantees as to what would happen. Yet he knows that the answer is found in God himself. As he says in verse 8, from the Lord comes deliverance. Salvation is found in Yahweh and only in Yahweh. Whatever David thought might happen, the answer was to trust in God to save and to preserve and to deliver his anointed king. Now as it happened, and as we saw in 2 Samuel, God's intent was indeed to overthrow Absalom and to reinstate David. In fact, as David slept, God was using Hushai to frustrate the council of Ahithophel and keep David safe from a nighttime ambush. Do you remember So in a sense, David's prayer was answered very directly. God did deliver him. However, as we saw at the end of 2 Samuel, that deliverance was not complete, was it? It was messy. It was compromised. David himself is a complex character in that story. Factions and difficulties and enmity and shame continue to plague his kingship. David was rescued from the judgment of God, but... the deliverance was never complete. David was restored to the glory of the throne of Israel, but it was a tarnished glory, and it couldn't last for long. Which brings us to Jesus. See, unlike David, Jesus knew precisely when and how God would deliver him. But for King Jesus, that deliverance lay on the other side of a Roman cross. It lay on the other side of excruciating pain. It lay on the other side of false accusation of the schemes of wicked men, of the total abandonment of all his followers. Jesus' vindication, his deliverance from the judgment of men and from shame, lay on the other side of the judgment of God poured out on him on the cross. Jesus' vindication lay in his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of God. That was Jesus' vindication, wasn't it? It was a signal of defeat for his enemies. That was his coronation as the son of God king who would rule the nations forever. As Paul would say later in Acts 17, for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That's what it meant for David. That's what it meant for Jesus. What does it mean for us, his people? Well, at the end of the psalm, we see the answer. Look at verse 8 again. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Now, this is a key idea, possibly the key idea, in at least the first half of the book of Psalms. The idea is this. When the king is delivered, blessing flows out to all the people. When the king is delivered, Blessing flows out to all the people. You see it again and again throughout the book of Psalms. Read on, you'll see it everywhere. The king is in trouble. He cries out to God for deliverance. God steps in to rescue the king, and the result is that the whole people benefit, not just the king. 
Of course, that just makes sense in its original context, doesn't it? For all his faults, the land was better off with David as king than with Absalom. But these prophetic psalms speak beyond themselves. How will all of God's people ultimately find refuge? How is the curse of God on our sin, rightly and justly, transformed into blessing? Well, the answer is through the deliverance from death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God King, who cried out to God and was heard from his holy hill. Let's conclude. I said at the beginning that these psalms are songs of blessing. As we meditate on these words of God, as we take refuge in the Son of God King, we learn what it means to live a happy and wise life, to live the kind of life of which God approves. And I hope what we've seen today is that the promised blessing that the Psalms hold out to us is not some pie-in-the-sky fantasy. I hope if you're not a Christian today, that's really clear. What Jesus offers us is not an easy life here and now. It's not necessarily a life of health and wealth and prosperity. It's not necessarily a guard against pain and anguish. It's not necessarily a fix for our world's ills in the here and now. The gospel of Jesus does hold out those promises for the future. A new creation where all sin and suffering and injustice will cease, where every tear will be wiped from every eye, and where the heads of Jesus' people will be lifted high. But don't have false expectations for the Christian life. It is sometimes, perhaps often, the way of shame and suffering. Because that is the way the Son of God King walked. It is a cross-shaped path. And yet, this cross-shaped path, the way of shame, is also the way of glory. The cross and resurrection of Jesus, both his shame and his deliverance, bring blessing to his people. It brings us the hope of that new creation, a final deliverance from our enemies, a final peace which will never end. God has arisen and delivered us from, our sin, from sin and death in Christ. The victory is won, and the glory will one day be seen to belong to Jesus, the Son of God, King. And although hardships will come in this life, although shame and suffering is the normal path, yet the one who has found refuge in Jesus has one thing that can never be taken away, and that is the relationship with God as Father. When accusations come, God declares from his holy hill that our sins are forgiven in Jesus and so shields us from despair. When shame comes, he declares from his holy hill that he's going to lift our heads in Jesus. When fear comes, he declares from his holy hill that he has arisen to install Jesus on the throne of this world and that he will arise to bring final deliverance and blessing to his people. See, if you were to look at David in the valley of Kidron, you would see a shamed and suffering man. You would see the same if you were to look at Christ on the hill of Golgotha. You might see the same if you were to look at one of Christ's people today. But when God looks at his people, he sees something different. He sees his resurrected and victorious son. And one day that will be seen by everyone. As Paul says in Colossians 3, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I'd love us to finish by reading together the words of Psalm 3. As Jesus leads us in his choir, let's sing this song together without a tune as our final prayer. I'm going to read the, the heading. You don't have to say the cellars, can if you like. 
let's conclude by reading this psalm together. A psalm of David's when he fled from his son Absalom. O Lord, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver him. But you are a shield around me, O Lord. You bestow glory on me and lift up my head. To the Lord I cry aloud, and he answers me from his holy hill. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear the tens of thousands drawn up against me on every side. Arise, O Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. Amen.